The Charlotte Ledger Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Hey, it's Tony Messia with the Charlotte Ledger, and you're listening to the Charlotte Ledger Podcast. You can find out more about the Charlotte Ledger and subscribe to our newsletters by going to thecharlotteledger.com. And if you like this podcast, feel free to share it with a friend or give it a review, or subscribe to it or follow it. We'd appreciate it. I'm talking today with Lauren Martirano, who's the founder and CEO of Zinnia, a tech platform that helps businesses plan events such as offsite meetings, leadership retreats, client dinners, and more. Lauren, I'm looking forward to talking with you about that and about Charlotte's tech and startup scene, and also about artificial intelligence, because that's a hot topic, and Zinnia uses some of that technology. I should also mention that as we're talking here in July of 2023, the Ledger is running a series on AI and the people and businesses who use it in Charlotte. And that series is called Faces of AI. So talking to you fits in well with that, even though this is a podcast and listeners can't really see your face. But regardless of that, thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me, Tony. Super excited to chat. Okay, so let's start with how you wound up in Charlotte. I always find that kind of fascinating because everybody has a how I came to Charlotte story. And, you know, it's been often observed that not all that many people who live in Charlotte are actually from Charlotte. So how did you wind up here? Yeah, I actually um, came here with Salesforce. So Salesforce had an opportunity here and I moved from New Orleans. Right. So Salesforce is a platform. It's a a customer relationship management or CRM platform Mm -hmm. that helps businesses manage sales and and customer service. Right. And before that, I think you were with you were with Microsoft for, I think, five years or so. Yeah, I was with Microsoft for five years. So I've kind of been all over the place. I'm actually originally from small town, Nebraska moved to Texas and then New Orleans. And I ended up in Charlotte, you know, about four years ago. I love it here. Well, great. So a lot of people don't think of Charlotte as a place where you would start tech business. You know, it's not like Silicon Valley or Boston or Austin or anything like that. So what what made you want to do that in Charlotte? Well, I was living here already when I was still in the corporate world. And when I decided to make the jump right in, I realized that there is a pretty strong community of entrepreneurs here in Charlotte. When I say strong, I mean, people are super supportive of one another, some really, really talented individuals. And I think each of the individual founders here has really brought it upon themselves to build out an ecosystem. It didn't really come from the top down like it did in Silicon Valley with investors and money and, you know, big tech. It really has been more of the grassroots, you know, approach here, which I really love. So what is Zinnia? Can you give me the elevator pitch for Zinnia, the problem that it solves and how it solves it? Yeah. So I founded Zinnia because of two things. One, I've always been really passionate about the importance of building community, hence the founder community here in Charlotte. But two, I know that there's nothing more important than the power of human connection. And as I looked at my time in corporate, you know, one of the biggest things that stood out to me was I was always remote first. I always worked from home. But the way that I built community was through these in-person touch points called offsites. So whether that was a sales kickoff, a QBR, a customer meeting, a conference, something like that. We built human connection by by coming together in person. And so Zinnia is really the platform to help you do that at your company. So help you plan your offsite or retreat in just a handful of clicks. But not only that, help you connect better with your customers by having AI-generated executive summaries of who you're meeting with and talking points of how to talk to them and how to sell to them. Let's walk through that a little bit. Say I have a company and I have a bunch of employees that I want to get together with a bunch of potential customers. How do I use Zinnia? Why would I use Zinnia? What, how, how would that work? So if you have not planned a company offsite or retreat before for a distributed team, it is 
a huge pain. I used to have to do it in my corporate days and, you know, try getting 27 people together from 27 different departure locations. Where do you go? Where do you stay? How do, what do you do while you're there? It's a huge undertaking to plan this. And typically, most companies don't have somebody whose dedicated job is to plan. So it falls to people who end up doing it on their nights and weekends. Zinnia's platform allows you to kind of give your inputs. Here's our budget. Here's our goals. This is what we're trying to accomplish. And basically just take that, you know, hundred of hours of research and planning down to a handful of clicks. So when you put in your parameters around budget, timeline, goals, those are kind of the things that our system will take in and then offer up those recommendations. So a lot of times people will reach out and send RFPs to 20 different hotels only to realize that the ones that are available that they reach out to aren't even within their budget. And so what we do is before even sending out an RFP, we make sure we understand the parameters and make sure that everything is within the scope of what you're looking for. So offers up suggestions, typically two to three, so that you can kind of make your decision. But it's all based on what you want. So instead of saying, here's the standard Marriott in Charlotte, it's here's the coolest hotels in the city that are within your budget and are what you're looking for. So what's the response been to companies that have used it? Well, most of our customers have come back and are using us again and again. So I think we had a quote last week that said that you are sent from the heavens. I could not do this without you. It was actually an exact quote from one of our customers. So, you know, they were really happy with us and they're really happy not to be planning on their own. Does it depend on the technology that the hotels or that the sites have? I mean, or does it go through? Does it generate those RFPs? Does it get a response back? Or does it have, does it able to interface with the hotels in some way? I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to get a, a sense of sort of what it, what it can automate. Yeah, absolutely. So we truly started out as just a services business to test out demand and, and see if this is something people actually wanted help with. And then we built the technology around that. So today we do have that portal where all of our customers can kind of log in and interact with our system to make their selections. But it does put together kind of a crafted RFP that is sent out to our hotel partners that are within our system. So it's not integrated into hoteling systems. If you're any part of that industry, you know that it's convoluted and messy and super archaic. But we kind of found a workaround in the meantime. How big is the market, do you think? I mean, how, how many companies do these sorts of things? How many of them could benefit from something like this? 74% of companies are now hybrid or completely remote. And so companies are spending more and more on things like offsites and retreats to be able to, you know, engage their employees that are remote or increase that employee retention. But there is a statistic out there that says that the corporate event space is expected to hit $510 billion by 2027. So it's an incredibly fast growing industry. And I think it's growing 18% annually. So it's a huge, a huge, huge market here. So did you just get the idea this is something like, you were in a hotel and you're like, gosh, we should be able to automate a bunch of this. Or, or where, did, where did that spark come from? Yeah, I um, started looking a lot actually into the future of workspace when I decided to launch a company alongside Atlanta Ventures back about a year ago. And looking at different things with future of work and this remote first world. And a lot of this came to me because my entire corporate career between Microsoft and Salesforce, I was actually always remote first. So I never had an office to go into and I knew how important it was for me to connect with my you know, counterparts. And as I looked into the industry, there's it's such a saturated industry with, you know, here's something to plug into Slack to be able to create quizzes to connect with your team or, you know, these type of things that are kind of still virtual. But there was not really a lot around how do you actually bring your people together in person and how do you do it well? 
and pair that with the fact that I knew how important those things were and I was the one stuck planning them in corporate, I knew it was a huge pain point as well. Yeah, I mean, with the ledger, we plan some events and it always takes a lot more time than you think. You just think, oh, well, how hard could it be? We just find a place and we send out some <laughs> invitations and we show up. And it's like, no, it's actually a lot, a lot of work that goes into it. From, and people don't, I think, realize everything that goes behind an event. I mean, it's basically like planning a wedding. You know, there's all sorts of different things that go into it that I think a lot of people don't think of. If you just show up, you know, and it's done, you don't necessarily appreciate all the work that's that's gone in there. And yeah, I mean, one of the things I hear from talking to companies a lot is this desire to get their people face to face, especially coming out of COVID. Whereas, you know, during COVID, maybe they, you know, they were sending gift baskets to them at the holidays. Now it's like, okay, let's all go to Top Golf or let's all go, you know, to a, a ropes course or something like that. And so it, it seems like you're sort of getting, hitting, you know, a few different intersections of, of pain points. Oh, absolutely. So Zinnia is an early stage company. And like you said, it was founded a little over a year ago. And typically the model for these tech startups is you sort of kind of get it off the ground. You have an idea, you sort of build proof of concept. You raise some money to be able to hire a team, to be able to expand. And I know you all recently announced that you'd raised, I think it was nearly $800,000 in venture capital. So how is that whole process going? Where are you in the process and, and how, how's it going? Yeah. So we launched out of the Atlanta Ventures studio last year. So if you're familiar with Calendly or Sales Loft, there's some other Atlanta Ventures portfolio companies. But through that process, we did a lot of ideation, customer discovery. I had calls with actually over 150 different leaders at companies, just bouncing ideas off of them before we ever landed on Zinnia. But, you know, fast forward a bit, I've been expanding the team um, so we have four full-time employees, a handful of awesome interns. Interns make the world go round. And then we're still supported by Atlanta Ventures back office. So they're, they handle our marketing, finance, all of those type of things, which is amazing. Um, but yeah, we just raised an additional almost 800000 So brings our, our raise total to just over a million so far. Backed by Creative Co Capital here in Charlotte, who is incredible. So huge shout out to them, as well as a couple of strategic angels, Great Ventures and Atlanta Ventures. So what's the plan for now? Is it just to sort of build awareness? Is the technology where you need it to be? It's just a matter of finding clients. Is, I mean, what or is it sort of all things at once, you know, at the same time? <laughs> what, what is the, what is the goal for right now in the next, say, three to six months? Yeah, well, it's all things all at once, all the time, forever, it feels like in the startup world. But our focus right now is really continuing to gather as much information and customer discovery through our current clients, but also through outreach and, you know, different discovery calls. One of the biggest things we've been learning is our customers will come to us and say, hey, our sales kickoff was awesome. We want to sign on with you for our next one, but it's not for six more months. What we really need help with is we're going to this conference. Can you help us plan a happy hour? Can you help us plan a one-off, you know, customer dinner or an employee appreciation event or customer appreciation event? Can you help us with these kind of one-off things? And we've heard this over and over and over. And so we've expanded into the revenue driving space for events. And all of that being said, the, the conversation is so topical today is, you know, we're, we're helping a lot of these customers drive revenue through these events. But what they really need is how do you actually connect with people when you're there? So if I'm going to bring 10 prospects together to sit in a room for a private dinner, how do I actually seat them according to how they can collaborate? You know, when you sit down at a dinner and you talk to someone, you're like, wow, I just found out we both hiked Machu Picchu last year. That's so cool. We're calling it kind of forced serendipity. 
So actually pulling AI profiles and using semantic search to be able to help people connect at these events is kind of really where we're focused on right now. I hate to come back again to the wedding analogy, but it's like if you think of the seating at a wedding and you think, okay, I need to put this person, I put my, you know, grand school friends at this table, you know, you try to, you try to plan that out and you think of the time that that takes, but if there, if that could be automated, it seems like that could be a, a huge time saver. Is that kind of the idea? Oh, absolutely. And that's just one application of kind of the executive summaries, executive briefings that we're, we've been pulling, you know, we're, we're doing things even into sales enablement. So you know, when I was at Salesforce, I sold Commerce Cloud, for example. So an e-commerce platform. When I would go to sell to a CFO, or neither CFO would be in a closing meeting, I would read the entire 10K or annual report. It's typically like 150 pages. And I would see how the CFO is compensated, you know, what he's been focused on, what his goals are. And so when I'm in the meeting, I know that his goal is to reduce margin or increase margin by 10%. So now I can come in equipped and say, hey, here's five other customers where we've in, increased their margin by over 10%. And so we're kind of taking those, those meeting talking points and not only helping with how do you create a seating chart, but how do you actually sell to them? How do you talk to them? That type of thing as well. Well, that sounds like a good segue into sort of the AI, because I'm guessing that that's all sort of automated with artificial intelligence. Is that is that the, the piece that AI can be helpful with with Zinnia? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, we will be launching the product. Actually, our closed beta is launching here probably in the next week or so. And it's called Zinnia AI. So right right where we're going. What are some of the challenges there? Because I know, you know, through my own use of, of AI, I mean, it's, it's amazing and it is mind boggling the stuff it can do. It's not always 100% accurate. I mean, how, how do you think about the sort of the, some of those challenges and some of the opportunities there? Yeah, that's actually, you know, kind of been our biggest challenge here, specifically for Zinnia AI, where we're focused on pulling these executive summaries and understanding who Tony is, and is this the right Tony? And, you know, what type of information are you pulling? And we have looked into tons of different APIs and data sources and tested a lot of them, and they're not all accurate. And so what we've really been focused on is how do we layer that data, balance it off one another, and then say, okay... Of, of the eight data sources we're pulling from, six of them say this. So that's the information point that we're going to go forward with. But you're correct. You know, there's different information everywhere. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's a trade-off, right? Because it's either you don't have this information at all, or you have information that you have pretty high confidence in. Like, which would you rather have? And I'm guessing a lot of people would opt for, I would rather have the information, even if it's not fully 100% reliable, it's better than walking in cold to a meeting, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So how would you describe this moment that we're in with artificial intelligence? I mean, this technology has been around for a little while. It seems like it has just really entered the public consciousness with ChatGPT over the last year. But how would you describe where things are with AI, not just with Zinnia, but sort of overall in the industry? Where are we? You know, we, we've gone through a lot of industrial revolutions over the years, but I really think that this is a huge pivotal moment for, for technology and probably the biggest one we'll see in our lifetime. AI, machine learning, all that has been around for a long time, but with the, you know, publicity and the openness of ChatGPT and, and OpenAI, it really allows people to play with it for the first time and have a really low barrier to entry. So, you know, before where it took a data scientist to be able to actually use this information. Now, my mom can say what restaurants have gluten-free in Tampa, Florida. And, you know, my mom is not a data scientist. And so 
using that information or using, you know, what's available today that's better for the general public, I think is really transforming the way that businesses are happening. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting to see because a lot of people think of it as just chat GPT, you know, this generative AI that can give you those sushi restaurants in Tampa or or whatever. But I mean, there's so much more to it that you can pull in. I mean, I've been playing around with the code interpreter bit of chat GPT, and that is just amazing. I mean, like you're saying, it makes you into a, a data scientist. You can, you can give it a massive database and say, you know, tell me 10 interesting things that I can find in this database. And it'll it takes 30 seconds and it gives it to you. And you can say, okay, analyze it this way, analyze it that way. And that's something you've always been able to do that, but it hasn't really been, I think, as consumer friendly and where it sort of masks all of the difficulties. It is pretty amazing when you think about all the different opportunities that there are out there with AI. And obviously you've got sort of, sort of a piece of that. Where is it all going? I just had this conversation with my parents last week and I had to tell them that it's not going to be robots taking over the world. It's not going to get rid of everybody's jobs. But AI is going to totally transform the way that businesses run and operate. And companies that don't adapt to using AI, I think are going to fall pretty far behind. So my opinion on AI is that it's not going to get rid of all these jobs, but it's going to help people be more productive and get their jobs done easier, better, faster, more efficient. And it'll be really interesting to see how it transforms the technology landscape. You know, I, I just wrote a post on this recently is like, you know, if you can write an entire platform using ChatGPT with code as a non-technical person, how is this going to make different software companies, you know, run? If you can build your own CRM in a matter of clicks, are you going to actually pay for it? So it'll be really interesting to see, you know, kind of what happens with it. But truly, I think what it comes back down to is loyalty and community and the support that companies will build around their software. Yeah, it's just been interesting. I've been talking to a bunch of people in this field lately for our, our series. And just, you know, I just continually get sort of blown away by the, the different use cases and the different different possibilities are out there. And that's just what we know today. And it just kind of seems like it's getting better and better. And that, yeah, there is eventually going to be sort of a a haves and a, and a have-nots. I mean, I think as a small business, it allows you to scale up in a way that you couldn't before. And it's not so much a question of, do I hire somebody or do I have a computer do it? Because, you know, it, it's really, you know, do I, do I do this with the technology or do I just not have that function done at all? Mm -hmm. So it can really be a, a productivity boost, I think, in, in a lot of ways. Obviously, there's still, I think, a lot of questions about, you know, job losses and you know, in your case, it's a matter of, I mean, you're working, you're doing corporate events, you're not arming nuclear warheads. And I don't think there's a concern <laughs> about, you know, world annihilation, and you know, computers becoming sentient and taking over our lives. But, you know, is there, I mean, how concerned should we be on some of that stuff, do you think? I mean, how much of that is serious? While seeing it as a productivity tool for a lot of businesses, how concerned should we be about some of these other negative effects? Yeah. I mean, from the job loss perspective, I think, you know, I think to me, the concern is low. Every time that, you know, we had assembly lines started getting created, the people that were working on or, you know, assembly lines to true manufacturing, those people ended up moving into other roles that were really important and pivotal to our society. So I don't think that that's as much the case. There's really interesting information, too, around AI and human interaction and the necessity of human interaction with AI. You know, there's actually like five different models of how that works. I don't know all of them off the top of my head, but it's like AI decides, human implements, AI decides, and AI implements using human parameters. 
I think human gives inputs and then AI decides from the inputs. And then there's a couple others. But the thing is, is there's always a human touch in it. And so when it comes to nuclear warheads, I think we're pretty far out from AI being in control of them. But I do think that it really comes down to having some regulation, having a human touch involved in it, and having safe systems. That makes a lot of sense. It makes me think, not to get too philosophical here, but you know, when you talk about technology and technology companies, Overall, you know, a lot of them have very lofty mission statements. You know, you think of Google, you know, don't don't be evil and Facebook aiming to bring the world closer together, that sort of thing. But there, I mean, there are occasional downsides to this technology, sometimes that are unanticipated. I mean, I, I heard a re- quote I thought was interesting recently that a lot of the moral and ethical questions on technology are now basically being reduced to engineering problems. I mean, how do you think about the role of technology in making a, a better world and and sort of trying to not have some of those negative effects? There's going to be positive and negative effects for anything that we build, that we do, any changes that we make. But I do think that, you know, similar to the rollout of fiber and internet fiber to the world, that was giving accessibility to information that people just didn't have before. And there's... I don't have any stats around this, but there's a, a there's a lot of research that talks about, you know, children's access to Internet um, because of low income or lack of access to Internet because of low income will keep that kind of income gap going for a long time because that's lack of in- access to to information and learning and knowledge. And so I think the same thing with the emergence of user friendly AI tools like ChatGPT is we're now offering everybody the ability to have access to knowledge and information and learning to help kind of even the playing field. So I do think that there's a lot of positive impacts that can come from it. And it really just comes back down to regulation and ethics and the people behind building it. There's going to be good and bad people everywhere, but I like to think that the world is inherently good. A good way to look at things. So what has it been like for you building this company from Charlotte as opposed to building it somewhere else? And I know obviously now virtually you can do a lot of things and the physical location maybe doesn't doesn't matter as much. But what's it been like building a tech company, a startup with you based in Charlotte, as, as opposed to how that would look if it, if you were elsewhere? Yeah. You know, it is def- definitely different here in the Southeast than it would be on the West Coast or New York or Boston. I'm very lucky that, you know, my team is remote first. So I have a rock star talent in Seattle and in Atlanta and in Georgia. So, you know, our team is very distributed. But as a founder being here, I think that there's a softer network. There's a lot more collaboration versus competition. The network of founders here is really open and inviting. I will say access to capital in Charlotte is difficult. You know, there's not a lot of big VCs here. So a lot of our connections do come from the Atlanta area. A lot of our investors are out of Atlanta. But even as such, you know, the valuations are much lower in the Southeast than they would be on West Coast. The metrics that investors look for are much higher. We're much more risk averse in the Southeast. And, you know, I think a lot of that has to do with the lack of volume of deals. You have to kind of be a little bit pickier because you can't balance out with these big home runs that Silicon Valley sees all the time with a lot of, you know, maybe ones that shut down pretty quickly. Yeah. One of the things I always hear on that is that, you know, Charlotte, you're talking about the access to capital, that it's sort of a banker mentality as a bank town, that there's sort of a, you know, risk taking is sort of frowned upon a little bit more than than sort of a steady return, like a bank would look at you know, an income statement or something like that when making a loan. And so, you know, a lot of times founders here, I think, have to look elsewhere. Do you feel like, I mean, are, is Zinnia looked down upon because it's based 
you know, in Charlotte or you have connections to Atlanta as opposed to, you know, if you were based on the West Coast? I think it's it's hit or miss. I, I don't know that look down upon is the right right term. I think that if I was a first time founder trying to raise capital with no connections, it would have been near impossible being out of here without kind of expanding my network. Luckily, you know, I've been in corporate and know people on the West Coast and East Coast, and it made our process a lot smoother. But one of the things that I did get a lot of feedback from from investors was that they love that we're remote first, especially being based here in the Southeast, because they're like, your talent is a heck of a lot cheaper. So you can you can kind of get your dollar to stretch a little bit further as early stage and trying to be scrappy. You mentioned some of the collaboration with other founders. How was that to kind of tap into that network here in Charlotte? Are there organizations that you're a member of or is it more informal? I mean, what has that been like? Yeah. I mean, I think, Tony, we had met, you know, early on in my founder journey here in Charlotte, and I was still really looking for kind of my network here in Charlotte. And it was a little bit disconjointed, if I'm honest. You know, there's some things that are, you know, kind of founders and funders happy hours type thing, but it isn't necessarily focused on venture backed startups that are going through kind of the same thing. And so I really found networks in, in two specific places. One of them is called Gwen. It's Growing Women's Entrepreneur Network. I'm actually on the leadership team for it now, which is so fun. But we get female founders together. If you didn't know, 2.2% of venture capital dollars last year went to female founders. So, you know, 97% went to males. Got to try to fix that a little bit. But getting people together, helping each other grow businesses has been really, really helpful. And then the second was actually really more of like a homegrown aspects, talking to some of the founders, I think you may have even introduced me to, where we're like, we really don't have a network here. And so Alex and Dan from 2U Laundry, if you know them, they're amazing. They're crushing it right now. But they started this pizza and bourbon night for founders, have to be venture backed, you know, have some really stipulations to make sure that we're all kind of getting value from it. And we rotate different offices or people's houses, and we just come together and, and chat, see how we can support each other over pizza and bourbon. It's awesome. I'd love to take credit for it. I did introduce you to a couple people, but I don't know that they were that they were on that list. But I'm happy to help people sort of grow their grow their network as they're as they're getting you know everything figured out. But yeah, you mentioned the, the growing women's entrepreneurship network, and I know that you're you're interested in that topic. Like you said, the venture funding you know flows overwhelmingly to to male owned startups. So what is what are some of those barriers to getting more women? into technology and into starting companies? And have you come up against some of those barriers yourself? Oh, I could talk about this for hours, but I ultimately what it comes down to is I think it's a really convoluted issue. It's not just that, you know, these men out there won't invest in women. I don't believe that at all. I think that there's, it's multifaceted. I think women tend to not think big enough when it comes to launching companies, myself included. My investors have really helped push me and expand my, my vision. And so when, you know, founders don't think big enough, they're not investable. Women tend to be more risk averse. There's, you know, that's a proven research backed point. So being a founder is the riskiest thing you can do when, you know, over 90% of startups fail. And, you know, I also think that it comes back down to, you know, gender pay gap is a big thing too, frankly, when there's, you know, women don't have a history of making a lot of money and being able to jump in and take a risk and take no paycheck or taking a huge pay cut, it's a lot easier if you've had a lot of success in the past. And so I think those are just a few of the things, not even to get into the accredited investor limits and all of that kind of thing from the LP side. But yeah, I think 
also just frankly, it's hard to see women on, you don't see women on stage very often on the front page of business magazines. Are there any encouraging signs? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, one of the the found, most successful founders in Charlotte right now um, is a female founder and she just had a big exit this last year. So there's definitely people out there that are crushing it and are breaking the norm and paving the path for other women. Well, that sounds good. That sounds like a good note to end on. Any advice for people who might want to get into, you know, have an idea for a business? I mean, what sort of things have you learned? Do you have any nuggets of wisdom from your journey? You know, I say the same thing every time, but I came into being a founder with a lot of imposter syndrome, being like, I don't look like other founders I see on TV. I don't know what the heck I'm doing. You know, this is now my second company, but I was like learning the first time jumping in. But what I realized is that nobody knows what the heck they're doing at all. Even the most successful entrepreneurs that have, you know, billion dollar exits are like, I Googled everything. I fake it till I make it. And so I just think that if I could leave one word of advice for anybody, it's don't be scared because nobody knows what the heck they're doing anyway. All right. Well, that's some good advice. If people want to find out more about Zinnia, how do they do that? Go to getzinnia.com, G-E-T-Z-I-N-N-I-A.com. All right. Great. Well, thank you, Lauren. That's a wrap. And to our listeners, thank you for listening. The Charlotte Ledger podcast is produced by Lindsay Banks. You can find out more about The Charlotte Ledger at thecharlotteledger.com. QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. Queen